2: Severin, this is Greenhorn's radio radio for young farmers by young farmers. this young farmer is snowed in in right next to Lake Champlain and talking to another young farmer who is in Southern California. I'm jealous of your weather, Owen.
3: <laughs> I believe you.
2: Tell us tell us tell us um, what the weather is like over there. I think I'm, I have a lot of winter listeners here. make us make us suffer. <laughs>
3: Well, um, despite a recent uh, sort of what would be described as a cold snap for this area, it, over the last several days, has warmed up quite a lot. And, in fact, I believe today is, is uh, just in the lower 80s uh, Fahrenheit. Okay, that'll do. That'll
2: do. Oh. <laughs> um. Owen, oh, you are a permaculture designer and landscape uh, consultant and do workshops on key lining and holistic management and decision making, and, uh, and you travel around the world as a consultant. What's that like as a lifestyle?
3: <laughs> what that is like um, as a lifestyle is really, as you've described, it's highly mm-hmm. nomadic. And so, um, you know, I've really been full-time at this uh, a couple of years now, but have been doing it since 2007. Um, and so slowly, incrementally, since that time, it's just become more and more uh, of a nomadic situation. So I'm getting in touch with that modality of, of sort of human lifestyles that have been going on, I guess, since the beginning of humans in one way or another.
2: So let's just do a quick review of some of these tools um, uh, that you're using as you're going around consulting with landowners and land managers um, for water, for land health, for carbon in the soil, for permaculture design. Tell us what's in your toolkit and how you apply it.
3: Absolutely. Um, Well, one of the sort of frameworks that I rely on uh, heavily is the holistic management decision-making framework. And, of course, most folks are familiar with kind of the grazing planning aspects and livestock management um that holistic management also brings to the table. but at the core, it's really a uh, decision making framework um with a big focus on sort of generating a a a really positive vision for what you want in the whole that you're managing and so that you know they refer to it as the holistic goal or the holistic context now as the language that's being used around that. And, you know, that's really where I like to begin in in any um, interaction with land and people is uh, to find out what sort of that vision is and um, how we can then use the other tools, such as um, tools from permaculture design or from key line design. Uh, For example, the key line scale of permanence um which is climate uh, geography water access forestry uh buildings fencing or subdivision and soils uh is is more or less the sort of broad outline of a sequence uh, that I use in in doing designs um and other tools that I like to bring to the table there um, would include some sort of initial analysis using uh, resilience science, which is sort of at the cutting edge of sustainability science that emerged in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and there are some good tools to, to sort of start to analyze where your particular system is at in an overall adaptive cycle, and that can give you good clues as to how to proceed. Um, And additionally to that, (laughs) I enjoy bringing in just, you know, being open to bringing in a variety of frameworks that have proven themselves to be um, useful in different scenarios, just because I feel like it gives a richer palette than if you're staying within any single kind of framework on its own. And so I like to bring in a lot of social uh, group process types of tools and technologies, so to speak um where those are appropriate cuz um quite early on that's that's one of the lessons that I got as early as 2007 I suppose was that really the biophysical approaches and techniques that we bring to any of these land situations are you know only as good as or really ultimately less important than what's happening within the social realm that's connected to that landscape because even if you have the best um, physical techniques in the world, they're not going to be applied or they won't be um, consistently uh, followed up on um, in a way that will support the land health in the long term if you don't have the social pieces functioning also.
2: So when people bring you onto their land to help them fix up their degraded land, how do, you, how do you, like, um, how do you break it to them that they have social dysfunction problems? And then how do you um, work through that? <laughs>
3: um, well, that's a really good question. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not usually a situation where it's a matter of having to break this stuff to people because usually when there are those problems or, or social dysfunction happening, uh, at a location they're pretty well aware of it um and even if that's not where they're focusing um you know because because land and human systems are so connected and really ultimately can't can't be separated um as soon as you start talking about what the land issues are there um you're sort of already talking about the social issues that are connected to that because usually like, well, we can't do this approach because of, you know, maybe it's kind of a larger scale regulation in the region or maybe uh it's um just a farm scale, you know, within the family uh or within the labor force or something, um, there is dysfunction. There's disagreement about how to proceed. Um, so oftentimes it's it's not so much a matter of saying, Well, you guys have to fix those specific problems because that's another thing that they emphasize, or, or we like to emphasize in holistic management, is um, is to manage for what we do want, as opposed to managing for what we don't want. So it's much more of a sort of appreciative and um, uh, a focus on sort of our vision on the solutions, rather than on what the current um, problems specifically are. And and uh because what we find is, is whether you do manage for what you do want or for what you don't want, you tend to get what you're managing for. And of course a great example would be just with the kind of national approach we have generally to to sort of quote unquote noxious weeds or invasives, that kind of thing. We spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um <clears throat> you know, spraying for these things, and the problem just keeps increasing. So we're managing for what we don't want in that case, and we're getting it. Um, So similarly, if we manage for what we do want, we find that can be very effective at um, achieving that too. So rather than telling them uh, people that, oh, here's your dysfunction and here's how you need to fix it, um, it's usually more just a matter of, finding out from them what is your vision, and if there's disagreement around that, maybe going through a process to generate a holistic goal, holistic context, um, where the common ground can be achieved, and that's why those social tools can become really important in a situation like that.
2: And you um, you got all your training in Land Grant University, is that right? <laughs>
3: Um, In fact, no. I I do feel that that our secondary education system um, has largely fallen down at this point and is, you know, uh, you might even go almost as far as to say irrelevant. Um, So in a way, I use the fact that I did not... I don't have any kind of ecology or agriculture degree from any sort of land grant university or other university as a positive, um <laughs> being that I have far less to unlearn um as a matter of, of uh that being the case. So what i what my sort of university experience was also very nomadic, um or what I'm calling my university experience in this um Realm because of course I had a, I had the standard university experience, um, but it wasn't for agriculture or ecology. It was well, my undergrad was a cinema television production, uh, which kind of those skills ultimately amount to storytelling. So I use that a lot as as an educator now. Uh, those those particular skills for with graphics and with um, you know telling a story in a way people can learn, and secondarily my my. Master's education was uh, Eastern philosophy, so at first, when I was getting into this, I didn't recognize how deeply that connects to everything here. But really, it was the first kind of systems thinking or complexity uh, awareness that was explored in 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 a systematic way or in a tradition um, that humans have been doing. So. Uh, I feel like that's really helped me to grasp a lot of these holistic frameworks um, that are applied to agriculture much more quickly than I might have been able to grasp them otherwise. And so, subsequent to that, uh, my sort of agricultural and and social technology education has been kind of just a, a nomadic, free-range university, so to speak. Um, where over the years uh, I'll attend, you know, workshops, conferences, um, uh, experiences on farms and ranches doing different types of interning um, and those kind of things wherever I can that it's supplemented by uh, an awful lot of reading and study um, ahead of time prior to, you know, learning about those topics or subjects and then more follow-up experiential and Reading uh, on the back end, and uh, so that's more or less the what I'm calling my sort of free-range university that uh, has has led to all of this.
2: It seems like there's kind of a cohort of you guys who are like the workshop teacher dudes, and um, <laughs> you guys hang out a lot together, and you range around and you get to see amazing variety of landscapes and. Um, I like doing that too. I get to travel around a lot and look at different landscapes. But one thing I always wonder about is the relationship over time with land that land managers who are you know more fixed in place are able to have and see really intimately that the the feedback loops of their you know moves and the, the, um, manipulations on that land and management decisions. Um, how do you um how do you how do you deal with that kind of weird problem of being a fly in dude flash what are you what are you working on learning next that might help you do that better
3: sure sure well and and that's been definitely part of the journey in in becoming increasingly nomadic is kind of learning from that and um you know finding a way in to be able to you know, experience landscapes just in a visit with as much sort of intensity and accuracy, um, you know, in terms of an assessment that will allow a a really responsible design going forward. Um, and that's certainly, I think, something that's going to be a constant learning process and, you know, not something that's susceptible to perfection uh, like so many things in, in life that are complex, but one thing I have noticed is that I do get to have the experience of learning from all the folks who are living in those places um, that it's their sort of territorial homes and that they understand the nuances uh, very well, and so I get to learn from so many interactions with different uh, farmers, ranchers, and uh, land managers maybe working for organizations that are managing land in one way or the other. Um, uh, so I sort of get to get some of that collective experience in the process, which really furthers my learning a lot. Um, the other aspect of this is that um, while it is certainly true that staying on a particular piece of land for a longer period of time is g- going to give you much more nuance and, and uh, sophisticated understanding of, of the details of what's happening, at the same time, um, I think if, uh, it's been my experience that an understanding of the basic ecosystem processes, um, and this is another sort of approach or way of looking at the landscape that, that we teach in holistic management is, um, so the ecosystem processes are the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, um, community dynamics are kind of the successional level or, you know, what is the uh, collection of, of life forms uh that are here and kind of what stage are they at in their assembly. So to speak that'd be the community dynamics. And then fourth it would be energy flow and that, you know, basically just starts with sunlight and it's kind of the thermodynamics of what's happening there. So the sunlight, you know, enters into that system and and it either it falls on bare ground or on a plant leaf acting like a solar panel which you know translates that energy um, into plants and um... that gets translated into animals etc throughout creating a food web in essence um, so that's another ecosystem process naturally all four of those processes are deeply interconnected they're really a single process that the ecosystem is is you know always becoming uh, so to speak so um, but they're just different lenses or different windows that uh, makes it uh, simple enough uh, to understand what's going on in each of those um, compartments of the ecosystem, so to speak, although we understand that they're not compartments, it's a single whole. So my point being is that having that, having those lenses or having that way of approaching any landscape anywhere I've been in the world um, Although the people uh, at those different countries might be speaking different languages, the landscape is speaking the same language. And so it it becomes uh, much more effective to be able to read what's happening. Um, The more you can kind of appreciate those kind of processes, in in my experience. Um, Well,
2: so many of us are operating at a farm scale um, from a kind of farm... Farm scale perspective, and the farm, and this kind of family farm, as the basic, you know, economic movement, uh, economic unit, I should say, of the local food movement or the re-regionalization project. But it sounds like Absolutely. the logic that you're tuning on into is more of a basin scale or a watershed scale, like landscape logic. Um, what would be some tools that you would suggest for those of us who are wishing to kind of contextualize our own? long-term decision-making, especially, you know, here in the Northeast, we've had major um, major catastrophic weather situations with Hurricane Irene and Sandy, and, um, you know, people are really feeling, I think, more than ever the need to be resiliency-minded in their farm planning over the long term. What would be uh, some good background or approaches that you would suggest for that?
3: Sure. Uh, well, one of the ways when I'm working with folks to uh, you know, help them flesh out the the hole that they are actually managing on their farm property, ranch property, or or you know whatever land they might be connected to. And of course, you uh, you know with the holistic goal and holistic context idea, you don't even have to own land. But you know the folks that I'm working with would tend to. Um, So in any case, one of the tools that I use to do that is uh, I call it three by three equals one, three times three equals one. So basically, we look at three domains, those being sort of the ecological, uh, the social, and uh, the financial or economic. Um, So looking at those three domains, we then take each of those and look at three different scales for each of them, because uh, that's some of the things coming out of resilience science are, are showing that you don't really understand a system until you understand what's going on at at least three different scales and how those things are interacting. So, for example, our, our you know, our middle scale, our focal scale, so to speak, would just be the, the actual um, ecologically just the property boundary, so to speak, of, of the farm or the ranch um, and so within that property boundary, who are the, the social players within that property boundary? What are the economics, you know, within those social players? what are the, What's the economic, uh, you know, constraints and, and opportunities, that kind of thing? And then we'd look at a scale below the farm scale, which would be, say, the independent, ecologically would be the independent, say, land component, you know, You've got maybe a riparian, a a river system or stream creek running through the property that might be one kind of subsection, so to speak. Um, You maybe have different fields that are uh, managed differently, a pasture area, a forest area, whatever that might be. So you can break it down, uh, those land areas that are within the the focal scale, into their subcomponents. And then if if appropriate, you can connect... um, you know, social dimensions to each of those uh, and or just break out the, say, the farm family into, you know, the individual people that make up the farm family. That's the, uh, the next scale below in the social domain, uh, the focal scale, and, and likewise for financial. And then you can also look at the larger scale that that property at the focal scale is embedded in, so it would be embedded in, a, in maybe a watershed um, or a larger community or bioregion. Um, however, is meaningful for the client to define that for themselves, so it makes it a useful tool. Um, they can look at what's happening in that um, system ecologically, socially, financially, and how that affects uh, their farm. And a lot of times you can get just different insights about how you Place is embedded and linked within this um, bigger system, and um, also to the smaller components within your system. So that's that's one tool that just helps us wrap our head around what it is we're actually able to influence and manage, and how that's connected to the, the larger scale above.
2: Well, we don't always um, we don't always think that we can change. Um, you're, like, I really like the word, there's macro and there's micro, but I'm really into this word mezzo, uh, that feels right. like you mezzo. are really articulating. Uh, and it seems like a lot of times we're not aware of how malleable that context really is, uh, and, well, and how, how much it determines, I mean, how much does social relations determine? Um, how do you get people on board, though? How do they? Um, I mean, I know it's positive, and I know I've been through holistic management training, and I love it. Mm-hmm. But like, people are ordinary, you know. People are locked in, <laughs> especially you know, especially old, you know, old people. Uh, and sure. And you know, so like, let me let me apply this to a, like a little bit less abstract. One of the things I'm really absorbed with right now is around farmland transition and moving between the generations. So about 70% of American farmland is owned by people who are over the age of 65. And, you know, you see that everywhere across the across the country. You see people who are our parents' age who are owning businesses, trying to transfer them to their kids or to somebody who's not their kid, or they're trying to sell it and have a retirement. Um, so it's like a pretty important negotiation point, like inflection point in terms of land management nationally is – getting on the same page on a MESA level with people who, you know, have institutionalized uh, their their own instincts um, in the farm business and on the farm land and now have to deal with um, somebody else's instincts coming on board and and shifting the way that that uh, translates out into land management decisions. Give us your top three ideas, Owen.
3: (laughs) Okay. um, Somewhere in there, I lost the thread of what's ideas for what?
2: <laughs> we might not have enough time for three ideas. Um, the ideas are about how to how to open up the conversation at all, especially with kind of recalcitrant okay. players who maybe, especially in the you know um, generation who are in their sixties and late sixties and seventies, who still are the majority landowners. Um, and especially in that transition, what are some good kind of basic tactics for young people who are in a kind of a negotiation around land with retiring generation people to open up the conversation about those the human systems and um, designing for transition? Sure. Wow, I actually repeated my question. Amazing.
3: <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I think that time I, I heard it more clearly and, and thank you for repeating. I, You know, I I think again, um, coming back to discussion around kind of what the vision is for that place and for what contributes to the larger community um, can be, you know, one useful way to get into that discussion because you know, leading from that's it takes uh, it takes a sort of position of of listening of listening to this to the older generation and to you know, what their thoughts and values are regardless of whether you share them in every last instance, and, but if you can understand where they're coming from with that and um, what it is that they need to satisfy their, their own sort of quality of life and um, vision for the future, then uh, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to start to construct possible ways together that you can move forward. Towards that vision, that also incorporates maybe a little bit different vision of the younger folks coming into that. Um, but it's tough to get there without without having that level of discussion. And and I, I agree, sometimes uh, not everybody wants to get into that dialogue. Um, they just want things to be the way they are. And you know, there's a certain amount of of. Uh, just a natural sort of human process of mortality that will also shift things, um, you know, just given the the age differences there. Um, some of the more recal- recalcitrant ones will only loosen up uh, once mortality kicks in, um, <laughs> in some cases. So that's, you know, not that that is a strategy. Um, it's just kind of an observation of, of how things are. To a degree, but you know, I think if we can jump ahead of that, get get out in front of that issue, and not count on that as being the strategy, um, but enter into more of a dialogue, uh, I, I think that's likely to be much more viable, um, and you know, create solutions that integrate both interests. I, I really think that there's a lot of value to that. There's there's a saying somewhere that in a in a million voices, truth. So, uh, I know younger people coming in have a lot of, you know, innovative ideas and, and the energy and enthusiasm to put behind them, but, of course, the older folks have tons of value to add to that situation. I think together, thinking this stuff through together, uh, you're going to end up with a much better um, vision in the end because uh, it will have both the experience and the uh, These sort of innovative energy coming into it, rather than just
2: well, and especially for that to be a a really reciprocal process, I feel like, and not uh, not neither neither confrontational, nor kind of win lose or whatever antagonistic, is a real you know art and probably the goal. Sure, Uh, but very much so. And I think that the family. It seems like the family is is really the right tone to to invoke. Um, you know, to, to to be in a in a kind of a loving place with each other. You know, I care about you being happy over the long term, and you care about me being happy over the long term, and start from from a place that's more familial.
3: I I think that's right. Family is a very powerful driver and uh, and container and sort of attractor for for a lot of positive things. You know. There can be less positive things associated too, but I think, uh, you know, on the whole, it's, it's a very strong part of, of what humans, human beings are and what they, uh, what we understand and, and how we kind of organize our lives. And if we can sort of uh, not so much harness that, but work with that dynamic, um, you know, towards some of these more positive aspects, um, I think it's, it can be powerful leverage.
2: All right. To powerful leverage and no more time, treat your land like family and treat your non-family elders like family. Um, Find Owen online. He has amazing um, resume e-pictures and uh, training classes coming up on key line design and landscape management and holistic management and all sorts of amazing ninja tricks. (laughs) Any last words before we say thank you?
3: Um. (laughs) Thank you, I think is what I'll say Thank you, Severin um, For bringing me on It's been a great pleasure
2: Great pleasure to meet you, Owen And uh, thank you all for listening To another episode of Greenhorns Radio Stay tuned for more later Bye
1: Thanks for listening to this program On HeritageRadioNetwork.org